Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazer. And I'm Erica Cerullo. You might know us as the co-founders of Of A Kind, the co-authors of WorkWife, or just two women who feel so strongly about their relationship that they own the domain ClaireAndErica.com. Related, head there and sign up for our newsletter and find episode notes. Leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463. Check out our Instagram at a thing or two HQ. And if you listen to your podcasts on Apple, please subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. It will help us so much to find other listeners. I'm really excited about today's episode. Oh my gosh, so excited. We are talking to the authors of Big Friendship AKA people we've definitely talked about on this podcast 1400 times before because we, because how could we not? Constantly. Yes. Yeah, because how could we not? Anne Friedman and Amina Tussaud are friends of ours. They are also the co hosts of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast. They are authors of the concept of shine theory. They are feminist thinkers and writers and um, content creators and just really smart ladies who wrote a book about this concept of big friendship, which I think is essentially um, an argument that there's this category of friendship that we haven't really named and they're naming it and it's big friendship. And it's about the the most sort of important, critical, committed uh, relationships that are not romantic or, or work or... Um, it's like a way to claim how family. invested you are yeah. in a friendship. Um, exactly. Yeah. And it's not just like best friendship, which feels like, you know... Well, that's a- always felt like a imperfect term. In perfect term, in per- also because best implies a singular one, or exactly in a way. Exactly. That, yeah, <laughs> and like, I know Mindy Kaling says best is a cat, best friendship is a category, but yeah. like nonetheless, nonetheless, exactly, exactly. Um, so this idea of a new term called big friendship that um, is as important as family and romantic relationships and all of those obviously resonates with us. They wrote this book together. They also wrote this book together in a way that was even more together than the way we wrote our book. They Like line by line, they wrote it together. Yeah, which is 
wild to me. But obviously we relate to so much of what what they talk about here um, and the way that, you know, the, the core thing that they talk about is conflict in their relationship and working through rifts in their relationship um, and going to therapy for rifts in the relationship and deciding just how important it was to them to invest and how core this relationship was to who they are. You know, obviously you and I, we get this. this <laughs> we get is, it. Yeah. We get this. Um, should we bring them on? Let's do it. Today's episode is brought to you by Folding Chair. Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm famously said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Well, the chairs are ready. Folding Chair was launched in November of 2018 by a team of three best friends. This is where we point out that they're work wives who grew up together in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. With each new addition, they aim to shine a light on stories that impact and matter most to communities of color. Mainstream news often focuses on the same stories, the same voices, and the same angle. But that's where Folding Chair comes in. Folding Chair features stories from around the globe covering a range of topics, including social justice, education, politics, technology, business, sports, so much more, recapped in a witty and insightful voice. Between news articles, TV shows, movies, books, and podcasts, there's no shortage of content to consume every day, but it can feel impossible to figure out what's important and what it really means. The Folding Chair newsletter provides you with content to educate, stir curiosity, and spark conversation. Their motto is creating community wherever we sit. To sign up today and check out back issues, head to foldingchair.co. That's F-O-L-D-I-N-G-C-H-A-I-R dot C-O. Hi there, I'm Lauren McGoodwin, founder and CEO of Career Contessa, the largest online career resource built inclusively for women. I also have the privilege of hosting our new podcast, The Females. We're here to help with real talk career advice from CEOs, authors, creatives, and other experts to give you real strategies for building a successful career all on your own terms. Each episode of The Females is sure to not only inspire, but also to motivate you to take action and move your career forward. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for new episodes and follow along on careercontessa.com. Thank you guys so much for being here. We're so excited to talk to you. This book, this book, we can't believe it's here. Big friendship. Oh my gosh. It's like hotly anticipated. Hotly anticipated. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Tens of people want to know. (laughs) I mean, I feel like everyone we, everyone we know is, it is anticipating this book. No. Yeah, for sure. Everybody that yeah. I know, everybody on my internet. For um, sure. you, I mean, you both know this feeling of you are writing the book and you're freaking out about it in your own way, and other people are want to read it, and um, those are two very different experiences. <laughs> <laughs> a question that I have had for you guys for like a long time now is, I know that you both there's this saying that everybody always uses, like, you have so many books in you. I know you have a book in you. It's kind of like a cheesy phrase, but I do genuinely... It's like a 90s movie, like, line or something. (laughs) But I do genuinely believe that between the two of you, you have a good 10 books in you. And I know that for a really long time, people have always said to you, why haven't you written a book about XYZ? Can you write a book about XYZ? So one thing I'm really curious about is why this book? Why now? Why was this the one where you were like, yes, it's going to be worth the hideous pain of writing a book? Um, thank you for zeroing in on the hideous pain of writing a book. I, I am probably the half of our writing duo that believes that. So I'll let Anne speak for herself. But I will say that... Um, 
you know, the, the genesis of this book truly is that you're right. People have approached us about writing a book over a couple of, you know, over, over the years, different things. And the book idea that they always have is you do a podcast, you should write a book. And, um, you know, a lot of people, not an idea. I was going to say, what an idea. (laughs) It's, it's not an idea. And it, and truly like, I'm not interested in reading that book. Um, and it was, so it was always a really easy, uh, no, like I, a, a podcast to book deal is it, it, yeah, maybe it works for some people. It did not work for our particular podcast. And so, yes, we had been approached multiple times. The idea was never there. And for me, at least, the emotional origin story of this book is that Anne and I worked through something that was really hard, like repairing a rift in our friendship. And I, you know, I'm confident in saying that we are two people whose uh, our, our professional identities are really important to us. And we relate a lot to each other on, you know, on the level of work. And so it was actually very telling for our problems that the thing that drove us to want to repair our rift was originally a work question, not a personal question. And in doing all of the work to figure that out, we finally had um, we finally had an idea and inspiration of, oh, here's a question that we have explored extensively and maybe we have something to say about this. And not just a question that we've explored extensively. Like I would actually say going back to before we wrote the book, a question that we have flailed about in the dark, like in like like without any sense of guidance or orientation and trying to answer. Cause like that part about it felt different. Like, you know, there are lots of things that we are interested in that like many people have written books about that are like super interesting and informative and like you know, mind-blowingly good. And this was one topic where it was like, in the realm of nonfiction, it was just like shruggy emoticon, there is nothing. You know what I mean? And I think that like the experience of trying to repair a very, very important relationship that is not a family relationship or like biological family, not a romantic relationship, and also like not rooted in trauma in some way. Like our rift was not something that was like, you could really build like a blockbuster movie around. It was like the kind of quiet everyday stuff that happens to people. Those are all things that, um, that made me want to write about it. And I think that like, okay, yes, this was a miserable process for me too. Okay. Writing a book is miserable. <laughs> finally, she admits <laughs> it. Finally. finally. <laughs> I mean, with like, dying to hear these words. This can be her ringtone now. Great joy. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need me to record some just like writing a book is miserable? I'm miserable too, like ASMR. <laughs> yes. um, but the reason, the thing is like, even when it was really difficult, I never wavered in my feeling that this book is doing something that is new and different. And like that to me is a very motivating thing of like, I mean, I know hearing you guys talk about work wife in the same way of like, oh, these are stories that we didn't see collected and reflected anywhere. Our experience is not reflected this is a motivating reason to write a book. Like, I think that to me is part of the story too. Mina, I liked what you said about when you were trying to solve this friendship rift or trying to work through it, you approached it from a work angle. And I think it's like, it's interesting to think about the fact that there were frameworks to think about a work rift, or there's just like so many guides online or so many books about how to, you know, professionally partner with someone or how to um, solve those problems. But when you think about the fact that there just aren't, there just aren't books on friendship, there just aren't books that place a value on those relationships, which is odd given how important they are and how core they are to our lives. Well, there are books that celebrate them. 
Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of, there are a lot of books that celebrate friendship. There are a lot of like Christian self-helpy, how to be a friend book, you know, that's really rooted in here's be friends with people. So you could be missionaries together. And then there is a ton of like very beautiful fiction about how complicated relationships between women are like, you know, I'm like, we've all read the Franze novels. We've all read, you know, like Barbara Pym and the Sula and just like name them. There's like a hundred of these books. In I the have not read Barbara Pym for the record. <laughs> <laughs> you should read the Barbara Pym uh, body of work. But, um, uh, you know, the, I think that like we all have an imagination for here is how uh, a friendship between two people can be, can be hard. It's been reflected on the screen. It is reflected in words. It exists. What was really missing for me was it was not helpful when I was, uh, you know, when I struggle in this relationship, the one that I have with Anne or with other relationships for someone to say, oh, just watch Girls. That was an episode of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> or just, you know, or, or listen to this podcast. You can't, I was like, you can't give those things to someone in a meaningful way that go really deep. Not that I have not enjoyed all of those things. Um, shout out to uh, the Ferrante HBO adaptation. <laughs> but I think that in the way that I resolve my own inner conflict and in a way also that I can really just try to understand what is what are all the feelings that I'm feeling? I needed an account from real people. You know, I was like, where are two real people who are talking about their relationship? And, you know, and this is a thing that the four of us have talked about a lot. Work for me is, it is an identity that I inhabit more comfortably than other areas of my life. Like I'm really good at saying how I want to work or how I feel about my work or negotiating or blah, blah, blah. I am not very good at being, uh, you know, like taking those same risks in interpersonal relationships. And, and learning that about myself was, it was really mind blowing and very eye opening. And I think started to answer the question of, okay, when I'm failing at personal relationships, where do I turn to? Because I know where to turn to when I'm failing at work. Well, I thought that the way you guys spoke to this in the book was some of the most powerful stuff in it because you talk about these two dichotomies, right? Like work and friendship. And you say you probably wouldn't have gone to therapy if you hadn't had this sort of pretense of, oh, we have a business to save, right? You wouldn't have gone Mm -hmm. if it had just been, we have this friendship to save. And then on the other side of things too, you talk about how, you know, if you're in a marriage or in a romantic relationship, you do go to therapy, right? Or not only do you go to therapy, but you're just more willing to have the fight because you're committed to each other and you've made this commitment that you're not going to leave. And you guys speak to this academic who studied this idea of attachment therapy and friendship. And she says like, yeah, it's so much scarier to come to a friend and say, I'm upset about this thing because you run the risk of your friend saying like, yeah, you know, it's just not worth it to me. The friendship's not worth it to me. I don't want to have the no fight. there's no contract. Yeah. Um, exactly. And I think that ultimately what you're doing by raising these issues is making this argument for the idea of big friendship, for this idea of taking friendship as seriously as you take your romantic relationships and and your work relationships and anything else. And your family relationships. Exactly. And that's so powerful. And I think that's really what I came away from the book with was this idea that I think I I do internalize to some extent, but felt so... um, felt so important to to realize in a more concrete way. Yeah, and I think then it's like, you know, if we can put a name to something, like, okay, like what we are doing is not, we're not in a friendship that's like click a Facebook status or whatever. Like we are not in a friendship that's like we check in once every six months. Like we are actually in a mutually 
like supporting and really core intimate relationship that we want to remain in for the long term. If that's something that people can articulate to each other, then it takes away some of the risk of having those conversations. You know, it's never going to be the same as if you are incorporated together like we are, or if you are like legally married to someone, or if you are, you share like DNA with someone. (laughs) But it is like, it is a way that you can kind of front load some security so that when these things do happen, because they are inevitable, because humans are messy, 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 then the conversation is a little bit more possible. I think that's like part of what we're trying to unlock here. Yeah, I think that I think a lot about this as an invitation truly for other people to talk about their own friendships. It's less about here is, um, you know, like, here's us and what we're doing. But I think that um, part of using our story as the vehicle is really to show people that there is nothing special about our relationship. So many other people have these kinds of relationships. What we lack is a vocabulary for saying someone that I am not blood related to, or that I am not married to, or that is not my child, or, you know, the other relationships that are accepted in society is really important that that person is really important to me and shout about it on the rooftop in, on rooftops, but also be able to have space to explore that it's complicated because part of the story of friendship for me that is frustrating is that culturally we're in a moment where it's, you know, everyone is like, yes, friends are good. And, you know, you're supposed to, it's like, how many friends can you fit in the Instagram frame and all of, all of that stuff. But no one is, is having like the difficult conversation of, well, like if the point of, being friends with someone is that you want to be family with them. The key word there is family and families are hard and complicated, messy. And so how do we navigate that? You know, and how, so how can you both like celebrate your friendship and also be really honest about the fact that it is a hard relationship to sustain and it comes at a cost for everybody, you know, and that it is work that you constantly have to do. We accept that, you know, whenever people marry, people say it's work. Everyone knows what that means. But if you say that about your friends, the first thing that comes up to me is like, oh, oh those two are on the rocks, you know? And, or, and it oh, seems that friend is a toxic inevitable. friend. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of vocabulary, how did you guys come up with, or how did you two come up with the term big friendship? Do you remember this? It was really, I mean, it was, it was the title of our proposal. It was like one of, it was, it's been, it's been locked in since the early days. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I will confess that I, uh, I remember it as we came up with the term before we defined it. <laughs> in, <laughs> true, um, in true like genius marketing moments of, of, of this collaboration. I remember that we were looking for a title for the book for a really, really long time. And we threw out a couple of things and, you know, and we, and it is truly like an, an inside meme that we have of everything is big, you know, right. with us. like we are big women, we do big things. And so I I am pretty sure that that's where big friendship comes from. And we already have like a working definition of the kind of relationship. What we mean when we say, you know, like someone is, someone is this kind of friend to me because we're all getting older. And as I got older, (laughs) I got really tired of saying that someone was my best friend because, um, you know, eight-year-olds also have best friends and, uh, you know, and everyone has a bestie or whatever. And it's, and it's not to it's not to put down any of those words, like labels are really important. And I think that people, people understand intrinsically that putting a label on something makes it real. What we were really trying to define was that this was, 
this is a bond that is both like very good and very complicated and goes deeply. There's no, you know, we still don't have like paperwork to affirm friendship and we don't have, there's not a kind of bureaucracy or like institutional support that comes with saying like, this person's my friend. I want them here. Like I want, I want the world to know that they're my person. And that was the thing that we were really trying to get to. One of the sections of the book that was really interesting and useful for me was the section on race and you and you know because this is not a podcast or not a visual format Aminatu is black and Anne is white and you guys um part one of the conflicts that you describe is around the tensions in that and it felt really helpful for me as a white person who has non-white friends and I was really grateful to you guys for your honesty and your candor around that I'm just curious is that something that has become more comfortable for you guys to deal with over time? Is it something that you had to sort of rip the bandaid off and now it's an easier conversation or is it something that you've always talked about? Talking about race and racism and anti-Black racism, like these are things that we've talked about since the beginning of our friendship in some ways. I think that part of the chapter about interracial friendship that you're referring to that I think of when you say that is the part where Amina's experience is sort of explained in terms of like, yes, like we both had been having for a long time conversations about racism. However, when it came to specific harms that I have caused or things that I've done or things that I have not acknowledged, those are conversations that we didn't start having until much deeper into our friendship. And I don't know, I don't know that I could like exactly date it, but, but it's sort it's sort of, it's hard to conflate like all of like, you know, it's a lot of different types of conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. But I do think that personal aspect of like, how are we as a white person and a black person in an intimate friendship talking about the ways that this plays out on an intimate level? Like that's something that I, I think that like speaking only for myself, I was not good at in the early days of our friendship at, at recognizing or speaking to. And I think that it's something that, you know, what you see in the book is a glimpse of part of that process and also not a definitive endpoint and not the whole story. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's such a good distinction, Anne, you know, and I think we write about this where speaking just for myself, um, you know, in, in our, in, and in our friendship specifically from the ways, you know, we were introduced to each other by another black person. And that actually is a huge factor in how we are friends. And I, I know you as someone who has a lot of black friends and a lot of, um, friends that are, um, and you also have a lot of like people of color as friends. And what I had to also come to realize is that the distinction between like Oh, here is someone that I'm friends with, and we we can we have a really solid understanding of anti-black racism, and we have a solid understanding of of racial justice, and we are so good at talking about racism when it happens in the world. That is a track that runs parallel to: Are we good about talking at how racism manifests itself in our own friendship? And that is something that I will confess to. Uh, it also took me a really long time to figure that out, you know, and to say, oh, am I, when something as like that, we write about this particular incident in our book that on its face, honestly, seems like a really small deal. And 
we have to tell people over and over again, it's not about the incident. It's about the insight that you, you right. learn mm-hmm. or, you know, like, uh, yeah. So for anyone who's listening, like Anne is not a character in Get Out. Like this is not what we're talking here. <laughs> <laughs> we're not talking about that. Um, but you know, there are there are all kinds of microaggressions. There are all kinds of microaggressions and slights and um, perspectives and you know ways that arguments and um, and anything can play out that are all where race plays a factor. And I think that it took me a really long time, even as someone who is friends with a lot of white people and um, and and often like recognizes that for a lot of those white people, I'm actually their only uh, friend. Uh, I'm only their friend who is sometimes like even just a person of color, not just their only black friend. It took me a really long time to understand that because we do not have a vocabulary for talking about it in an interpersonal way. Hi, here's how structural racism uh, affects our relationship because how could it not that that was also another layer of understanding how conflict in relationships can happen right and so because everyone brings the full baggage of who they are and everything that is happening in the world also uh surprise surprise will replicate itself in your relationship and so i our goal really in talking about this is to you know is talking to a lot of people it's like if you're someone who uh doesn't have any you know, black people or people of color in your life, that's one thing. If you are someone who has uh, black people in your life, it doesn't mean that the work is done. And I think that it is truly has to just be a conversation that is ongoing and there's no, there's not really an endpoint. And I think that if both people are honest, then there is also really an opportunity to be really vulnerable with each other and to explain like what the thing is that you're actually afraid of. You you bring up the concept of stretching in the book that I thought was so useful and would love for you to explain. But I, and you would say that in this case, basically, you know, the white friend needs to be the one to stretch. And it's not like a give and take here, um, which you explain with stretching in general, it is. I think that we have resisted applying that stretch metaphor to big differences in identity like race, mm. um, in part because stretching to us feels a little bit more like something you can maybe account for and kind of like solve for in your friendship eventually, like find a new equilibrium. Yeah. Whereas when it comes to something like race, you know, there's no solve for the fact that like we are of two different races and have two dramatically different experiences in the world because we live in an extremely racist society. And I also just want to say that like on that front of like this idea of it's kind of on if you are in an interracial friendship that includes a white person, I don't really think of it in terms of like the white person has to stretch more, but I will say this is that I do think that being in an intimate relationship with someone who is white, if you are a person of color, requires ongoing and continual stretching in ways that are usually or very often at least not apparent to your white friend. And I think that like, you know, for me, a lot of the things we write about in this chapter, I had sort of in real time thought of as, oh, this is a difference between our personalities or our different conflict styles or a different, something that feels more on a level of like us as just like individual humans. And like, and that is partially true, but also like, you know, upon really having the benefit of getting to reflect on those experiences for this book, being like, oh, actually, I was really just wanting to see everything as interpersonal conflict that was not 
mediated or determined by race. And in fact, that is like totally impossible. And so I just want to sort of like on both fronts say like stretching is happening (laughs) in all directions in really different ways, often in ways that go unacknowledged on the part of a friend who is not white and in an interracial friendship with a white person. And then also like for us and like for me specifically, the benefit of hindsight and being able to say, oh, actually like we didn't realize this was a way that racism was affecting our interpersonal relationship. Like this is why Anne didn't point that out. Or this is why like, I mean, I didn't feel comfortable raising that. Or this is why, I mean, these are things that I don't think were apparent in real time for some very real reasons of like us wanting to just just wanting to deal with each other as like somehow deracialized individuals, which is like clearly impossible. The other thing that I'm curious about with this book is how you guys think about gender playing into it, because it's not just a book about female friendship, but obviously you are two women and you are um, prominent feminists and you have developed this idea of shine theory that I could be wrong, but I, I think is rooted in, in, women specifically, although of course men can can subscribe to Shine Theory as well. Do you think this book is specifically for women? You know, we wrote the book obviously as the memoir of our lives and we are two women. <laughs> so wait, what? I, <laughs> you know, um it you you have to say it and it's important to be rehearsed. <laughs> and you know, and part and part the reason that we use our story as the vehicle, honestly, is there there's so many ways that this book could have been written, you know. And I think that the reason that we were interested in doing it as a memoir of our specific story is that we think that there's a lot of power to specificity. If um it's easier to ground it in here's the experience of two of two real life humans who exist and are talking to. You know, but the hope is that in writing the book, so so yes, yeah, so in one way, it's easy to say it's the it's the story of um, a female friendship, and female friendships are X Y Z like this. But you know, as we address in the book, like we both are in big friendships with people who are not women, and are in big friendships with people who share all kinds of other gender identities, and it's important to you know, it's important to note that every friendship is different. Like this is, this is truly at its core, what to me is really beautiful about it as a, both as a relationship, as an institution is that the people that you are in the friendship with are the people that make the rules. They're the people that set the norms and they're the people that decide what their boundaries are and what their, you know, it's like, what are, what are your common goals or not? And what does this friendship mean to you? And so my hope really is, is that in us like telling the story about ourselves and being a little more vulnerable about here is the, here is the truth of how we live our lives. Because as you know, we are people who um, participate in public life. I think that part of the responsibility there is also being really transparent about, you know, what happens behind closed doors. And my other hope really is that if we did our job well, and I hope that we did, that this book will not be discussed as a book solely about female friendship and that people will take it to really be something that they can apply in their own lives and something that they um, something that they can take back into their own relationships and start to have those same conversations. Yeah, I mean, there's this thing that happens where when women's stories are the center, it gets labeled as like, for women. Yeah. <laughs> and I think like, you know, there is... there. There is a real vigilance we have had to adopt when it comes to the marketing language around this book, when it comes to certain cover tropes, mm-hmm. when it comes to 
a lot of these points where we want to say like, yes, we're women and we're centering that, but like, don't make this seem like all the research we cite is specific to women. Like don't make this. And also just like, don't, don't do men wrong by saying that they don't have these kinds of relationships too. Mm -hmm. So, so one thing that we've tiptoed around here a little bit um, that we need to dive into is the writing process itself, um, which you've expressed as miserable and painful. Um, <laughs> what other words would you use? How else would you fruitful, describe? fascinating, <laughs> engaging? <laughs> like, like honestly, here here's what I here's what I will say. Like honestly, because I think that I um I make a lot of jokes about how like awful it was, and if I am precise, it was not awful. It was very difficult. And for me, it really involved like stretching a muscle and call and doing a thing that I don't do a lot. You know, I like I always joke with Anne that the longest thing I'd written before writing a book was an Instagram caption. So all of those tricks <laughs> are lie, which is a straight lie. <laughs> I, true, right? Where I'm like, I've written a lot of shorter things. I had I, you know, I'm like 70,000 words is not in the um, it is not something I thought I was capable of. But I think that, um, you know, the writing process is really hard and it's fine that it's hard. I think that part of the challenge also is fitting in into the universe of all the things that you do. Doing a podcast requires a different kind of prep and a different kind of, you know, of, of kind of like brain power for me. And it's something that comes a little bit easier as long as the, and that's the same for the other kind of work that I do. And so... I felt really, um, it was really, really, really challenging because I was also learning so much as I was doing. And I, you know, and I recognize now that that is also, it's a discomfort that I don't feel a lot in my professional life. You know, mm. you're like, okay, I'm, cause there's the experience of doing a hard thing. There, there are a lot of things that we do where we're like, that's hard, but I know how to call in. Like I know how to, to, to fix it or I know yeah. how to do it. I just know that it's going to take a long time. and part of the difficulty of book writing for me was that it is truly not a muscle that I stretch every day and having to show up like, you know, at, at the end of every day, all I wanted to do was collapse into a puddle and I'm like, I got to do this again tomorrow. And the next day, this is nuts. So there, stamina. there is that. <laughs> Listen, stamina. I know, but I, you know, I, I think I have a little bit of it now. I also think that, you know, the, the way that we wrote this book is not on um, the way that we each do our own writing, which that also something should be said about that. And uh, we really wanted to write the book in one voice. There's no dueling chapters. It's not a Mina says, Anne says. It, um, we wrote every single sentence together. We um, extensively like talk through it. We outline together. We reverse outline together. We, and so, so part of the process was that, you know, we created time basically to be in the same city um, or in the same places for extended periods of time where we would have these um, writing sessions. Doing memoir is an interesting exercise of memory because it's like yeah. your memory of what do you think happened. And I learned for myself that I am very good at recalling a feeling that I had. But when it comes to like recalling the specific of the specifics of an incident, um, you know, that's something that sure, like the brain is not good at doing that. But the real, the real treat of writing this memoir with someone else is that, you know, there was someone else to either like corroborate or challenge a happening of events. And also because we are modern people who so much of our relationship did play out over uh, text and chat and like Gchat and email, 
there were actual records of things that we wanted, you know, that we we thought had happened. And so that was really, really, that was, that was amazing. Like, thank God for the, for the email archive. Um, and we also like people who journal a lot. So there was always an embarrassing journal entry to go back to. About, uh, <laughs> to be fair, the, my journals were useless. To be really? fair, they were useless. I was, when I went back, I thought I would find like specific details and things that like we could actually like hang on to, to try to jog our memories for the book. And all I found was feelings barf. Yep. It was not useful. <laughs> That's what your journal's for. I know. Feelings I know barf. Did, it, did that help make any of the emotional excavation that you, that you do to create this book any easier having these journals? It did for me in the sense where, um, you know, and I think that the, the reason, honestly, that I at all was able to participate in writing this book is because we had the experience of going to therapy together. Mm-hmm. where a lot of that emotional excavation had already happened. And, you know, and even if you don't go to therapy, I think that if you're generally give people the benefit of the doubt or whatever, you find that with time, a lot of feelings just lessen, you know? So a lot of things where I was like, ah, like six years ago, this was really the heart of my darkness. Today I'm like, I don't know why I'm saying that. Right. You know, like it just, it doesn't matter. And so I, yeah, I think that a, a lot of things happen and speaking only for myself, I think that even when we were, you know, when we were outlining this book and we were writing it together about things that were really difficult, like some of some of the, I'm I'm really proud of the work that we did, like, you know, explaining uh, situations that were difficult for both of us and doing it in a way that was not defensive and was truly like, here is the, here is the fact of the matter of what happened. Like I, I think that in some ways, actually, that was, it was more than healing for me. It was very much like, oh, yeah, this is why I'm friends with this person. And this is why it's worth pushing past difficult things. Because on the other side of that, if both of you keep showing up, your relationship can continue and in some ways can be better than it used to be. I know. I find myself wondering about how good my other relationships would be if we were forced to really find a joint narrative of of some of the things (laughs) that were going on. Because it is very healing to be like, actually, I have my emotional memory, like, because frankly, that's what a lot of it is. But I have my memories of what happened. You have your memories of what happened. And we have really kind of figured out together what seems like true enough to put down in words. And like, just that act was extremely healing. And you're right that like that work 100% began in therapy and also is rooted in a lot of private conversations that, you know, aren't literally reflected in the book. But it is really, um, I just, I, yeah, I can't describe how healing it is to just say like, okay, this is our shared version of events. Yeah, I like that a lot. So you present the idea in the book that we learn so much about ourselves from our friendships and from the feedback that we get from our friends about like, oh, there's a mention of like a pie. And when the friend asks you to bring a pie to a party, you're like, oh, maybe I'm a good cook. I kind of had no idea (laughs) until this person asked me. What have you each learned about yourselves from your friendship with each other? I think for me, like this is the relationship in my life that has really taught me more than any other about what kind of emotional processor I am. You know, like info that has borne so many fruits in other parts of my life of specifically like working through things that have happened with the two of us and being like, well, why didn't I say that in real time? Oh, because I didn't know how I felt about it in real time. Oh, it takes me a really long time to figure out how I feel about something. And I can't, like, I feel a lot of pressure and breakdown if I have to talk about my feelings in real time. Like even that, like, 
that feels like something that you should just know as an adult person about yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that kind of self-knowledge. And it is 100% the result of having to talk about why I did or didn't do something or listening to the way that Amina received or was hurt by something I did or didn't do. And that is like the, the first and biggest thing that comes to my mind. I'm sure there's like a million other lemon meringue pie level examples. <laughs> I, think like, like, more. I think you offered more. I think you offered more than that, Anne. Yeah. Yeah. That is the true and deep uh, version of my answer. <laughs> what a gift. Yeah. So I learned that I make a decent guacamole. Thank you for affirming me that. <laughs> <laughs> that is my uh, not risky one. Yeah, you know, I, I have learned like so much about like along the same lines as you and like how I process emotion and really how I process conflict. And I've also just learned, I think the story that I have always told myself about myself is that I, you know, I'm someone that like, I'm not afraid to have hard conversations. <laughs> I'm not afraid. And, uh, you know, and I consider myself to be someone who loves real talk and I can do all these things. And I, I really discovered in our relationship that that is just something I tell myself and it is something that is not necessarily true. And that was, that was a really big self-revelation. It's like, oh no, actually there are conversations in an intimate setting that I'm really afraid to have. Like there are, there are a lot of ways in which I'm very emotionally open, but seeing all the places where I'm a really emotionally close and repressed person was like galaxy brain level uh, self-knowledge. I think also there's like generally in our relationship you always talk about how your family is, you know, these like Iowa Catholics where you're just like loyal and you stick through hard things and you just, you know, you just keep showing up and you just do things. And that is not how I was raised at all. I understood that I was very much someone where when I'm uncomfortable, I just don't like to do things. But really learning that, oh, actually it is really worth like sticking through some like feelings of unpleasantness for myself because that is not the full story of what's happening. So I really learned about just like persevering through hard stuff and just like keep showing up and keep checking in. That is, I am not good at it. I am challenged by it, but it has been a, it has been like a really profound like revelation for me because I think that it's really just opening up an understanding of so many other places that I failed at in, you know, in like personal relationships with people. And um, you know, and hopefully I think it means that in the future, I will be better equipped to deal with all of those things. I love that. You two are so wonderful and so charming and we're so thrilled to have you. And I cannot believe that people get to read this book, Big Friendship. Oh my god! I gosh. got so much out of it. And so are all, is every, everybody who reads it is going to get so much out of it. We're so excited for the world to have it. Thank you. Thank you for doing the hard work of writing it. Uh, thanks for being our friends and for like being our champions and just good people that we love so much. It's a likewise it's really, it's yeah. really a treat to like come on a podcast that I listen to all the time and know oh. that um, oh. I love the people who host it. Thanks for having us. I also have a real desire. I know we're out of time, but I'm like, of all the people who are going to read this book, you, Claire and Erica, are like so so close to the experience of of being like colleagues and friends of being like you know of co-writing and doing something like this of having like this long-term business and intellectual engagement with each other that runs parallel to a friendship i want to hear all about 
whether the book reflected your experiences in that regard or not. Um, yeah, 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 Because yeah, 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 there are just yeah, yeah. not that many people that share like those points of commonality with us. It, it, yeah. I think it did it so much that there were like points and Eric and I talked about this a little bit where we had to like stop and be like, this is like, it was like eerie, like <laughs> to the point where it was like, I would have to I stop. Like are these sister books? Right, and yeah. separate <laughs> and be like, yeah, no, we had the exact same experience as that. Um, mm. It was, it very much reflected. I mean, there were so many themes that resonated, but everything around the idea of conflict, which was really, you know, like you guys talked about, central to your book, resonated so much for the same reasons that I think even Amina, you just talked about with this idea of like, of course I can have a fight. Of course we can raise issues with each other. And then realizing that we were like infantile levels of bad at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That needed removal. <laughs> I also really appreciated it. And it made me feel like so solidly Midwestern to read any line that was like, and this is like Anne's Midwestern tendency. And I was like, oh, that. <laughs> that's my Midwestern tendency. <laughs> like, uh, oh, oh, huh. Like, I don't think of myself in that way that often, but yep, there it is right there. Yeah, eight um, generations Sarah, of white Midwesterners. You... <laughs> Claire and I are going to write a book called How to Be Friends with Midwesterners. <laughs> it's going to be a bestseller. I can't, can't tell wait. you both though how much whenever we are muddling through, like either it is like a business question or it's like a, personal like professional problem or whatever always thinking about you two first as like what would they do or Claire and Erica said this or Claire and Erica did that or really generous and makes it, it seem like we know more than w- a lot more w- W-C-E-D. yes <laughs> no, I, I'm just telling you that like you know and and you guys are you're our friends so it's well uh, I guess we're is, all fucked because we think of you guys as that so <laughs> wow it's almost wow. like we're in community what <laughs> <laughs> we're either all going to be great or we're all totally screwed because yeah, you're that for us. So <laughs> I oh, hope you guys know what you're doing. <laughs> I well, do I'm not know what away. I'm doing. Bye. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm happy uh, that I'm surrounded with other people who know just as little as me and we're figuring it out together. That's, That's exactly it. it. That's, That's it. the show. This has been a production of Dear Media. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found, like Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at clarinerica.com. Find show notes and coupon codes and so much more at clarinerica.com. <laughs>